I've heard it said that you only go round once in life. You've probably heard that too. And if there's any truth to that, and I believe there is, then it would seem it's rather incumbent on all of us to take a good long hard look at the life we now live. And that is what we have been doing when we conclude a series based on that simple title, The Life I Now Live. It comes from the Bible, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where the Apostle Paul is talking about his own experience. And this is what he says. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, everybody lives their life by faith. There's nothing unusual about Paul saying, I live my life by faith. Everybody lives by faith because we are wired up for dependence. There is no such thing as a totally independent person. Not only that, there are great mysteries about the universe and we cannot understand everything. We have to take some things on faith. We accept certain things to be true not necessarily because we are able to prove them. I don't need to spend a lot of time making this point. It is perfectly obvious, I think, to anybody who's thinking that we all live our lives by faith. The question is, in what? And the Apostle Paul says he lives by faith in the faithfulness of Christ. A little further on in the same epistle to the Galatians, he says this, chapter 5 and verse 6. He says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So now he's going a step further. He is saying that this faith by which he loves, centered in the faithfulness of Christ, is a faith that needs validating. It is a faith that needs to be verified. There needs to be some way of seeing whether it is a genuine working faith. And he says, it's not difficult to figure that out. He said, the one thing that matters in the life of faith is that it is a life of faith that expresses itself in love. I want to remind you of what we mean by the life I now live, I live by faith. And then I want to show you how the life we now live by faith is to be expressed in love. And then we'll wrap it up by showing you ways in which the life of faith is essentially practical. Now, when the Apostle Paul says he lives by faith in Christ, who lives in him, this is in marked contrast to what he had previously said. He had made a most amazing statement. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is in the context of having been crucified with Christ that he now lives by faith because Christ lives in him. Now we need to understand the necessity for the life of faith in Christ who lives in him in the context of what it means that he was crucified with Christ. And when we talk about the cross, usually the emphasis we put on the cross is that on the cross, Jesus Christ died for our sins. A perfectly wonderful, legitimate emphasis. But I'm afraid we underemphasize the corollary to that, which is 
First, that Christ died for me. In fact, that's what Paul says. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. But secondly, we must emphasize the fact that we died with him. In fact, if we are not clear in our own minds of those two dimensions of the cross, we cannot really say that we are grasping the essential message of the cross. So when Paul says that he was crucified with Christ, he is saying that something happened on the cross that was beyond Christ dying for him. It had to do with him in some way dying. The question then is, to what? And we have noticed three things in Galatians that he says in effect that he has died to. He has died to the law. In fact, that is what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. Then he says in Galatians chapter 5, that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. So he's died to the law. He has crucified the flesh. And then in Galatians chapter 6, he says that the world has been crucified unto him and he unto the world. So when Paul talks about being crucified with Christ... He is saying that that in some way affects his relationship to the law. It affects his relationship to the flesh. It, it, it affects in some way his relationship to the world. Now, I've talked about each of these. Let me give you a quick recapitulation there so that we're all on the same page. When Paul says that he has died to the law, he is talking about a system of rules and regulations that have come from God that people try to keep in order that if they do a good job of it, they hope that they will be justified in the end. And there are people who believe that having been justified, they then live the life of the justified person by keeping the law. Now, the Apostle Paul says, you can't do it that way. For by the works of the law is no person justified for one very simple reason. You know what that is? We can't do it. We can't do it. I mean, let me summarize the law for you. The law says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and mind and soul and strength. I don't think I've ever met anybody who claimed to get even close to loving God every waking moment of their lives with all their heart and all their mind and all their soul and all their strength. And in addition to that, the law is summarized by saying, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we say, give me a new set of neighbors and I'll see what I can do. <laughs> the reality is when we look at what the law says, we know that we come far short of it. Now says the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, took the consequences of the broken law, the curse of the law that attaches to each one of us, and he bore the consequences himself, and we are forgiven and released from the curse of the law, and we're not here to live on the basis of trying to keep the law in order to please God and be acceptable to him. We live in an entirely different principle, which is what? By faith in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me and lives within me. So in that sense, I have died to the law. What's the flesh? The flesh 
Well, it, it can be a number of different things in the Bible. But the way that Paul is using it in this context, it, it, it is descriptive of what a human being is that he shouldn't be compared to how he was created. When God created human beings, we were made in the image of God, perfect, empowered by God to live a life that would bring pleasure to God. We rebelled, something called the fall happened, and we then became bereft of the power to please God, and all our capabilities and all our capacities became twisted and warped and tainted, and in some way they began to deteriorate. So that we cannot think as we should, we cannot desire as we ought, we cannot decide rightly, we cannot be what we ought to be, we cannot stop doing what we ought not to do, and if you put all that in a great big bundle, it's what Paul calls the flesh. And he says, the flesh can never live a life pleasing to God. Can't do it. It just can't do it. That's the bad news. The good news is he doesn't expect it to. For he has given Christ to live in us by his spirit as the counteracting dynamic to the flesh. And it is in the power of the indwelling spirit that we begin to live in newness of life. So in that sense, we have died to the flesh. And the world, what's that? Well, it's not the world of rocks and rivers. It's not the world of birds and bees and butterflies. When he talks about the world, he is talking about the inhabitants of the world with particular reference to their fallenness and the attitudes that have been engendered by their fallenness. And what is the general prevailing attitude of the inhabitants of this world Godward? I think we'd have to say that at best it is apathy towards God at worst, it is hostility towards God. And as a general rule, it is a desire to be independent of God. At best, apathy. At worst, hostility. And as a general rule, independence of God. Now, if you put all that together, that is the attitude of the world. That is basically the way the world, in this sense, operates. Now, we live in this world. We breathe its attitudes in. As people living in Los Angeles unconsciously breathe in smog, so we living in this world breathe in the attitudes of the world. They are propounded in the media. They are propounded in business. They are propounded in our educational system. These attitudes are propounded in homes, in families, in relationships. We can't get away from it. That's where we live. Now then, the world's attitude will never please God. We'll never produce the life that God wants us to produce. But the good news is, he doesn't expect it to. In fact, he says that he has overcome the world and that Christ is Lord in the midst of this world. And that what we need to do is to acknowledge his lordship in our lives and live in glad, trusting obedience to him. And it's not a matter of pleasing the world. And it's not a matter of living after the flesh. And it's not a matter of obeying the law. It's a matter of saying, I've died to those things. And now I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and lives in the power of his resurrection within me.
Now, having gone through all that at breathtaking speed and breakneck speed as well, I want you to understand something that where, where there could be a misunderstanding, and it is this. When we talk about dying to something or something being crucified, we, of course, transfer that to our experience of somebody dying. And when somebody dies, we recognize that they no longer respond to stimuli. If somebody has died and you shout fire, they will not react. If somebody dies and you put food in front of them, they will not respond. If somebody dies and you tell them something that's extremely funny, they will have lost their sense of humor. There there is just nothing there. They do not respond to stimuli. Now then, when the Bible says that we have died to the law or we have died, crucified the flesh or the world has been crucified to us, sometimes we translate that as saying, oh, that means that I am incapable of responding to the stimuli of the law or the flesh or the world. Wonderful. But then in our wiser moments, we say, if that is true, how come I'm so responsive? If I died to those things, why is it that I'm dead, but I won't lie down? And the problem is that we are attaching an analogy in a way that is never intended. When we talk about dying to these things, we're not saying that our ability to respond to the stimuli has ceased. What we're saying is that the relationship is ended. Now, let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I've used this illustration before. I'm a little reluctant to use it again because you say it's about time you got a new one. And I'll agree. And if you can give me a better one, I'll use it. I'll continue to use this one overseas, however. All right. <laughs> now, here's the illustration. Hundreds of years ago, when I was young and foolish, I volunteered for the Royal Marine Commandos. Young and foolish. What I discovered in the Royal Marine Commandos was there was a very nice gentleman called the Regimental Sergeant Major. He was a bully. He was a braggart. He was a tyrant. He terrorized our lives, all in the name of discipline. I won't go into details. I can't bear seeing grown men cry in public. But one day... We were on parade and the adjutant arrived. And we were surprised to see him because it was not adjutant's parade day. And he made an announcement, which was music to our ears. I learned it, memorized it verbatim. You are now temporarily released from His Majesty's Royal Marines. And you may, if you wish, seek civilian employment. In other words, we were demobilized. It was over. We were out. Done. It was wonderful. The first thing I did when I got off parade was go back to my barrack room and I got out my civilian clothes, which I hadn't worn for a long, long time because every time we went ashore in the evening, we had to go in full dress uniform and we had to be inspected before we could go. And that meant we had to spend hours cleaning the uniform before we could go. So the thought of just putting on some old civilian clothes was wonderful. And I remember luxuriating in them. And I remember putting my hands deep in my pocket and hunching my shoulders for the first time in two years. 
And I remember walking along a sidewalk, kicking a stone and rejoicing in my freedom. It was over. I was a free man. And then I saw the regimental sergeant major. And the most remarkable metamorphosis took place. My back shut up like a ramrod. My arms went up to the shoulders. And I began to march in the way that was unique to the Royal Marines. And I must have looked very, very strange indeed, wearing civilian clothes, walking like that. And then it dawned on me how strange it was. A little voice inside me said, you don't have to do that. You died to him. And then I said, yes, I know. But he's not dead. (laughs) And I went a little bit further and I said, and I'm not dead. So I've got a problem here. And my problem was this, that I died to him, but he wasn't dead and I wasn't dead. But nobody ever said he was dead. And nobody ever said I was dead. All they said was I had terminated a relationship to him. It didn't say he was incapable of being a tyrant anymore. Neither did it say I was incapable of being tyrannized anymore. Because he was still a tyrant and I was still capable of being tyrannized. But the simple fact of the matter was this. There was absolutely no basis for his tyranny and there was no basis for me being tyrannized. I died to him. He died to me. He wasn't dead. And I wasn't dead. The law is not dead. The flesh is not dead. The world is not dead. They're all very active. And you are not dead. As I can see, that is a true statement. And if the law is not dead, and the flesh is not dead, and the world is not dead, and you are not dead, then all those things are perfectly capable of having a hold on you, and you are perfectly capable of responding to every one of those things. But the simple fact of the matter is this. That is not the fundamental basis of the life you now live now. The fundamental basis of the life you now live is what? A life of faith, of trust, dependence upon Christ who loved you and gave himself for you and rose again, to live in you. And the life you now live, you live by faith. However, the Apostle Paul is very careful to point out that the life of faith is not just a matter of saying, well, this is what I believe, but it doesn't make any difference. And the life of faith is not a life where you simply say, well, you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe and I won't do anything with you and you don't do anything to me. No, what he says is this. The life, what really counts, is the life of faith that is expressed in love. And that is a critically important thing. What is it that validates the life of faith? What is it that assures me that what I profess is a life of faith is a genuine life of faith? And the answer is, one of the answers is this. There will be an expression of love in my life that is not attributable to purely human effort. 
It will be a kind of love that just doesn't love the lovable. Anybody can do that. It will be the kind of love that doesn't just love the lovely. Anybody can do that. It will be the kind of love that actually branches out into loving the unloving and loving the unlovely and conceivably loving the unlovable and doing it in such a way that people begin to see it and say, that is extraordinary. That is not purely human. That is something else. It is attributable to the life of faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me, and rose again and lives in me by his Spirit. Now, this should not surprise us. I mean, if we have come into an experience of salvation, if there's any sense in which there's a spirituality to the life that we now live in the biblical sense of spirituality then we understand that it is all predicated on God taking an initiative of love. Before the creation of the world, we are told that God had already determined that even though we were sinners, and that's all full of mystery that I can't get into now, but God had determined that even while we were yet sinners, he would love us enough to take an initiative, a costly initiative, to do something about us. It's predicated on an initiative of love. God didn't say, wow, are you folks a mess? Have you blown it? Ah, this is what you're going to have to do. You clean up your act and I'll maybe get around to blessing you. That is not what he said. While we were still sinners, God demonstrated his own love towards us. And how did he do it? In that he gave Christ as a sacrifice for our sin. And how in the world did that happen? Because Christ himself, out of love, was willing to give himself a ransom for many. You read the Gospels, and you cannot escape the fact that Jesus exhibited love constantly to the unloving, the unlovely, the unlovable. We're not surprised that the reality of our faith is shown in an expression of love. Why? because our salvation is predicated on the love of God and it was implemented in the love of Christ. But Romans 5 also tells us this, that the love of God has been shed abroad into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That the Holy Spirit is the one who has enabled us to grasp the love of God, to understand the love of Christ, to be drawn by this love and to have our cold, hard, rebellious hearts moved with love and changed from the inside out. Ezekiel puts it in this way. He says that God will take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of warm, pulsating flesh. Has that happened to you? Is that happening to you? It's a normative thing, you see. When we begin to recognize that the whole thing that we enjoy in terms of blessing before God is predicated on the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it would be very odd indeed if the response of our hearts would not be a sense of faith that expresses itself in love. Now, if you check in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, you'll read something else about love. And it is this. 
Paul, you remember, was dealing not only with legalists who wanted to impose all kinds of rules and regulations on people, but he was also dealing with libertines. They were people who were going to the other extreme and saying, in effect, hey, that's great. Paul says we're free. I'm free. That means I can do what I like. One of the things that I've noticed comes up in all kinds of things that we sing in church, whether old hymns or contemporary choruses, one of the things we're always thinking about is, I am free. And I've often wondered, when people sing that, I wonder what they think they're saying. Because the question that comes to my mind is, free from what? Free from what? Well, the simple answer is, free from the law, free from the flesh, and free from the world. So next time you sing, I'm free, make sure that you're singing something that is true. But the thing to realize is this, that Christ has brought us freedom. And Paul preached this freedom, and some people couldn't handle it, so they became legalists, and some people abused it, so they became libertines. But in the middle, there was a highway called liberty. Now, the big problem was, how do you drive up the highway called liberty and avoid the concrete, reinforced ditch called legalism that is protected by barbed wire. Don't swerve into that. You'll have a nasty accident. <laughs> well, you say, well, you swerve the other way. No, no, don't do that. Because on the other side, it's green and attractive. And there are all kinds of brilliant flowers there. Birds buzzing around and bees and all kinds of beautiful things. The only problem is don't go into it. It's a swamp. How do I avoid swerving into the ditch that's a beautiful swamp or a ditch that is a hard, unrelenting, reinforced, concrete, barbed wire protected ditch? And the answer, surprisingly, is this. You use your liberty. This is what Paul says, Galatians 5.13. Use your liberty lovingly to serve. That's what you do. And what he's saying, in effect, is this. Look. If the dominant theme of your life is that the love of God has captured my heart, and in capturing my heart, it has made it possible for me to live in newness of life, then this newness of life is going to be manifested in something that is foreign to me. And that is a desire to lovingly make my life available to God and to other people in sacrificial service. That doesn't come naturally. That doesn't come normally. But that is the true evidence of genuine faith. For the one thing that matters is not whether you're a legalist or not whether you're a libertine. The one thing that matters is that you're living in liberty and you're using your liberty lovingly to serve. Now says the Apostle Paul, If you use your liberty lovingly to serve, interestingly enough, you will fulfill the righteousness of the law. For the law is fulfilled in thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You say, "Uh uh-uh. Now you've been telling us we've died to the law and Paul's told us that he's died to the law and now he goes on and he quotes it. Now I wish he'd make his mind up. Have we died to the law or is it still relevant? Or a more important question for us, what is the place of the law in the life of the believer? And the answer is, 
There is a place for the law in the life of a believer, not in the sense that it is imposed upon us as a means of justification or as a means of sanctification. We have the obligation to live having died to that and being alive to Christ, but the fascinating thing about it is this. When we begin to live the life of faith expressed in love, and the love is expressed in loving service, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled anyway. For we begin lovingly to serve other people. Let me see if I can give you an illustration that will help this. I read last night, let me just check one word here. Yes, I read last night in one of the new magazines a word I'd never seen before, adult-essent. Have you, anybody ever heard of an adult-essent? It's something halfway between an adolescent and an adult. Adult-essent. Well, apparently they've invented a new group of people. They're in the 20-somethings. This is what they say. There's a new breed of people now. We keep producing them every few minutes. Adult-essents. Now, let me explain. An adult-essent is somebody who went off to Madison <laughs> when they were 18 as a relatively mature adolescent. <laughs> I want to use my words carefully here. A relatively mature adolescent to the intense delight of his parents. For everybody knows that life begins when your youngest kid goes to college and the dog dies. Now we can start living. Okay. So he's gone to Madison. Now, before he went to Madison, life was something of a struggle. And mother and son sort of butted heads over his room, cleaning his room, tidying his room. His room was a disaster. It was a pigsty. And she, for years, had been trying to get him to clean it up. Now she'd used various techniques. She'd pleaded with him. She got down on her knees and cried about it. She had threatened. She had bribed. She had used ultimator. And if the ultimator was severe enough and he got just a little bit scared, then grudgingly really making a big old to-do about the thing, he would sort of clean up his room. He wouldn't clean up the corners. He wouldn't tidy anything. He would just stuff it all in a drawer and jam it shut. And he, he would sweep all the, the gabby. He wouldn't take the garbage out. He'd sweep it under the carpet. And it was just a shoddy job. But he did as little as possible just to keep his mother off his back. And in the end, she breathed a sigh of relief. He's gone to Madison and he breathes a sigh of relief. He doesn't have to live dominated by his mother anymore. <sighs> Four years later, he comes home with a degree in nothing much. But his parents have spent a lot of money on it, so it must be valuable. (laughs) And he comes now as an adult essence. And this is what adult essence are doing. They're coming back to live with mom and dad after they graduate from college. Did you know that? And they're doing it unabashedly, unashamedly. Because with that degree, they're unemployable. (laughs) So they come and they live with mom and dad. And they're glad to have them back. That the most amazing thing has happened. Now his room is spick and span. 
It is immaculate. Not only is his room immaculate, he says, Mom, can I help to clean the rest of the house? And then can I work on the yard? And I would just love absolutely to clean the car. And are there any other jobs that I can do? And his mother can't understand what has happened. And what has happened is this. He sits down and explains it one day. He said, Mom, when I used to live here, everything was I had to do this and I had to do that. And I didn't want to do it. And it was a fight and it was a struggle. And I half did it and I resented it and I didn't like it. But while I've been away, I've realized how incredibly kind you are. And I realize how incredibly generous you've been. And I realize how wonderful you have been putting up with me all these years. And I just want to say thank you. And the interesting thing is this. The end product is the same. The room gets cleaned. But the motivation is totally different. You get it? You are not going to fulfill the law out of a sense of obligation to do what you don't want to do because you don't have it. But if you get a new heart, you'll begin to discover out of a great sense of gratitude that the righteousness of the law is fulfilled. So says the Apostle Paul, the life I now live, I live by faith. And the life of faith I live is expressed in love. And here's the third point. And we have precisely two minutes to deal thoroughly with it. And there are eight ways in which Paul talks practically about it. And I don't have time to get into it. Let me just read it to you. Eight ways practically in which the life of love, which expresses faith, works out. Number one, the life of love recognizes and rejects the works of the flesh. Chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Number two, the life of love depends on the activity of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verses 22, 23. Number three, the life of love is interested in restoring the fallen and the hurting. Chapter 6, verse 1. Number four, the life of love is committed to bearing one another's impossible burdens. Number five, the life of love avoids making invidious comparisons with other people. Number six, the life of love does not abuse the kindness of others. Chapter six, verse five. I like this one. Number seven, the life of love supports pastors joyfully and generously. Galatians 6, verse 6, should be underlined so heavily in your Bible, it comes through to the maps. <laughs> That's what it says. Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. It's in the book. And number, and the, I, I don't know what the next one is, but it's one more than the last one. Chapter 6. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. The life of love grasps opportunities for just plain old doing good. We spend an awful lot of time saying, you look good. And we respond by saying, I feel good. You say, you look good. You say, you feel good too. 
Feel good. Look good. Look good. Feel good. <laughs> I tell you how to put a stop to that conversation. Ask them two questions. Are you being good? And are you doing good? Are you being good? And you're doing good. Or in other words, are you living a life of faith that expresses itself in love? I tell you why it's important. Because you only go around once in life and you better make sure you get it right first time. Let's pray together. Lord, we're sobered when we think that we only go around once in life. Life is so full of mystery, it's so confusing, so many challenges, so many conflicting ideas, such a cacophony of voices. We find ourselves being swayed by this wind of teaching and that current of thought. But we thank you for your word that is steady and as solid and has survived all the attacks down through the millennia, still resonates with truth and reality in our hearts. And our prayer is that we might know increasingly what it means. To thank you that you died on the cross for our sins and to grasp increasingly the fact that in union with you we died to certain things in order that the newness of life might be experienced in our relationship to the once crucified, ever risen Lord Jesus. And in union with him, may we live by faith faith expressed in love. We pray in Christ's name.